Run toward the tomb. This is, this is the payoff right now, this text. And I, I gave it to the first service too. I always do. I preach 30 minutes to them and 45 minutes to you. And the sad reality is it means you get a better sermon. You get a deeper sermon. You, I got the time to dig a little further with you. We don't just have to give, you know, ah, millennialism explained. We're going to do that. We're going to do it at the end today. We're going to start with the whole series, Run Toward the Tomb. Why? Why am I doing this? Why am I not on the lectionary? What happened? Did you even notice? Now, you've used a lectionary a long time here at St. Paul. I'm a pretty diehard lectionary guy. But right now, I think we need more stories. I think we need to identify ourselves with the Bible more. And all the stuff you've heard before and all the ways I can log a philosophical view about it has not helped stave off the decline in our hearts with regard to these stories in the generations coming after us for the last hundred years. So I want us, again, to find the stories and so begin doing what the people of the Bible do. And so we started with Peter and John on Easter Sunday, running toward the tomb because they heard it was empty. And they dive into it. Remember this? It's all about John's death, Peter's death. So then the next week, we run toward the tomb with Peter. We follow him all the way to his death, through all the book of Acts, up to the persecution of Nero, and he's beheaded. Excuse me, he's crucified, upside down. Beheaded, that was Paul. The next week, Saul of Tarsus, enemy of enemies to the church, and yet he sees Jesus risen, runs to the tomb, his tomb. Same Nero beheads him. 67, 68 AD. From there, we jumped into the Christians in the churches that were planted by these men who ran toward the tomb. Not only John, Paul, Peter, but Philip, Apollos, James the Just, all these men, they plant these congregations. Congregations arise around the word of God truly taught out loud, and we then want to run with them, run with the church at Antioch, where they're first called Christians. Reclaim that name. I mean, I don't know. This might be fighting words. Are you a Lutheran or are you a Christian? And where, yeah, yes, right? Where is your allegiance though? Which comes first, chicken egg? It isn't chicken egg. It isn't chicken egg. And I promise you, Dr. Martin Luther did not become a Lutheran by reading Dr. Martin Luther. He became a Lutheran by praying the Psalms. I'm not kidding. You can look it up. Okay, so Antioch, where they're called Christians. What are you Lutherans? Are you like Catholics? Yes, but we're Christians. <laughs> Catholics are Christians too. What are you Lutherans? Are you like Baptists? Yes, but we're Christians. Ha, huh. we're Bible-believing Christians. Ha, huh. we have all the words they have, and we actually don't condemn them by and large. And yet we're so ashamed to be what we are. Run with the church at Antioch. They're Christians. Uh, running with the church in Berea the next week? This is Bible-believing and going deep more noble-minded than the other congregations who persecuted Paul for teaching Jesus from the Old Testament. The Bereans said, did it say that? Let's look that up. Let's find that book of Hezekiah. Is there a book of Hezekiah? Huh? And the Bereans are no more noble-minded. They go and they study the book. And so why am I doing this? I want you to run with me as a Christian who studies his Bible, like the church in Antioch, like the church in Berea, and a little less like that church in Laodicea that we saw last week. That was our one like really bad example, right? The lukewarm church, they're apathetic. Ho-hum, I don't know. Maybe I'll follow God tomorrow 
It kind of hurts today, right? They just couldn't get it together. And Jesus says, I'm going to stop you from being church. You're going to stop being church. And for we who are living in this American Christendom collapsing, whatever it is, whatever it is, it is definitely a rejection of Christianity on a global level. You can watch it happening. On a global level, the elites who used to be kings and queens of Christendom are rejecting Christianity and implementing an agenda of, it can only be paganism. That's the only other option that there is. And so we're watching this happen. Oh no, oh no. The question is not, oh no, over there. It's what's going on in your church? Is the messaging that they're doing in the WEF becoming the messaging from your pastor? And if you don't know WF, God bless you. You don't need to know. Is your pastor preaching the Bible or somebody else? That's what you need to know, right? Laodicea didn't care enough. Philadelphia not only cares, but they care, and then they start to ask, so since we care, why are we so small? Since we care, why are we not growing more? Since we care, why are we still suffering? Since we're giving our lives to God, why does it not look like he's in charge? And you know that's the question that they're asking because of what he says to them, which is going to start at the bottom of page 1029 in your pew Bible with Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, where it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Remember, last week a little bit, the angel is probably a pastor, uh, the one who would have received the letter and been the messenger to read the letter to everybody else. Philadelphia, a real city. Uh, Do you have before you, that might be in the card, this little uh, note card piece with the uh, table on the back and the map on the front? You can... See Philadelphia there. It's not in the eastern United States. You know, Kobe Bryant wasn't born there. It's, it's part of uh, Asia Minor. Uh, the city of brotherly love is what the word means. And I don't think any city named Philadelphia has quite lived up to that name uh, over time. Cities tend to be not places of brotherly love. But the city of brotherly love or, or even like warrior love, a band of brothers kind of thing. Uh, but this city had a congregation of Christians in it, just like Ephesus, right? And again, they're struggling under and are going to be under what's coming. The whole book of Revelation is warning Christians at that time against the Diocletian, he's a Caesar, Rome Diocletian persecution, right? Uh, So things are rough for the church is the point. And this is what I want you to like immediately transpose onto your life right now. Like in the New Testament era, If you had to look at the Christian congregations that were in Judea, like all 25 of them, with all, what, 450, all 7,000, what's the number on various days? It's never much more than seven or 8,000 for quite a while, right? And if you had to look at them and say, will that be the religion that conquers the entire world and has an empire run from an island in its name with the cross proclaimed as its banner? You would never have said that would happen. And yet for several hundred years, the sun does not set on the British Empire. And I'm not claiming that that's Christianity. I'm saying Christianity pushed it up. Underneath, they were being attacked still. Christians are being lied to. They're doing enlightenment thinking. They're they're disrupting our philosophy with lies from pagans. But nonetheless, Christianity was in the water for Western civilization, and everything rose. Like I said a moment ago with that whole Babel thing, As we remove the stories of Christianity from our society, you're finding everything not rising, everything sinking, everything's fracturing, there's no unity. So imagine again being a small church at such a time where you're kind of doing well, but you kind of don't know. You used to be a lot bigger. 
You used to feel like you had a hold on the culture. You used to think you could kind of just go on with life and it'd be the same in 10 years as it is this year, right? And to the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. I'm not going to go into details there except for the key of David part. This is the stewardship of the house of the kings in Jerusalem throughout the era of the Davidic line. Uh, so that uh, the, the people who would have access to the tombs of the kings to make sure the king is buried and then to make sure that the next king, the son, is crowned, they have to manage the house in between times. That's who would have had the key of David like as their signet. They'd, be, they'd carry that key. Well, here now, Jesus is like, I'm the one with that key. That whole household of Solomon, that whole household of Jehoshaphat, that whole household of Hezekiah, yeah, it's me, Jesus. I hold the key. And when I open a door, next line, who opens? No one can shut. And who shuts and no one can open. Which very simply means Jesus does what he wants, right? <laughs> like, like if he says yes and you say no, it doesn't matter to him. <laughs> He's not going to feel bad. If he shuts the door, it's shut. If he opens the door, it's open. Now, this is going to become doubly important when in a moment he's going to shout at you, your door's open, run. But let's, before we get there, realize that that shutting is a thing. And that the keys which loose and bind, Jesus talks about very directly in John 20 and Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, that the power of the church to forgive sins and to say to people, you're not forgiven, is Jesus' power in this present world right now. And that when the church says, you're forgiven, you're like, amen, I believe it. Well, then you're eternally alive. And when the church says, uh, you need to repent, you go, no way, uh, you're, you're bound for hell. And when Jesus puts you in hell, when he shuts the door, door shut. You can be a foolish virgin standing outside with an empty lamp saying, let me in, let me in. Yeah, you'll say, I don't know you. You remember that one, I believe, yes? So the power of Jesus to do what he wants is the point but this is being established to show he's going to do good to you. Huh? I know your works, he says in verse 8. A little bit of a left turn, but at the same time not. And I, I really want you to get this one. I mean, I really don't think I'm alone. No one, I didn't ask for a show of hands, and I, I won't again. But I didn't exactly get like amens and shouts for the first service. So, like, I, I, I don't know. Do you ever feel like God's not paying attention? I mean, ever. You get a moment where you're like, What? Like, really? I, I mean, I, I could talk about coffee again. Yesterday, I spilled coffee three times. One time, the entire cup just filled, fell off the table, landed, splashed up, spilled on everything except the thing I care about the most, and left me a little bit of coffee in the bottom so I could drink it while I cleaned it up. It was an amazing moment. Uh, um, and, and I can look at the sky and say, why'd that happen? How do I live in a place like this? How does a good God let evil go on? Or I can hear Jesus say, I know what's going on. I know your works. I see you in quiet when no one else does. I see you when you cry. I see you when you fear. I see you when you doubt. And I see you when you trust. So trust again. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, I could, I could go like, liar with this real it's so easy open door like god's promised money for your life look it says it right there open door just go go invest in some hedge funds because that's the season we're in right now it's, it's the year of the jubilee because of the red moon don't you know see how easy it is to make that stuff i just made that up all of it right 
uh, as opposed to um, the open door that Jesus has set before you that no one can shut is not your best life now, if by that you mean health, wealth, money, and more of me. Me, 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 I, 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 I get more. Uh, but the open door set before you is that you are immortal now. And you can never die. That is true. It's an open door. Walk through it. Walk like you can't knock walk through it. What are they going to do to you? Kill you? Guess what? You just get stronger. That's Christianity. We believe this. <laughs> yeah. Or do we? Or do we? It's been a nice story for a long time. Yeah? Something we can say yes to and feel good about, but then we walk out and we forget and we live other stories. What are you a fan of? What do you have on your walls? What do you wear on your chest every day? Right, guys? Huh? I'm not saying you can't wear those things. I'm saying uh, we need the unifying story again to wake us up. And that means running toward the tomb together. And that begins by believing that that open door can't be shut again. My grave never gets closed. You can bury me all you want. Put me 12 feet down. doesn't matter. I'm coming back. Right? Door no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power. He says, yeah, I, I've been in churches or around churches where they got like the surplus budget of several hundred thousand dollars and they don't know what to do with it. It's funny how they fight about that too. <laughs> like, like no matter what you do, there's always kind of a ruffling of feathers when we have to decide what to do with God's money. Um, but more or less, most congregations are living monthish to monthish most of the time. Uh, we have little power. We're not exorbitantly wealthy people. We're all doing fine. None of us are in the poorhouse just yet. God be praised. Yeah. Um, but our, our ability to move the world. I had this thought last week. I thought, you know what? I wonder if I asked that guy at church to run for mayor, if he'd do it. We have little power is what I want you to see from even that statement. We don't have any power. Jesus knows that. And he says, and yet you have kept my word. Remember how little power we had to keep our big, beautiful building downtown? We didn't have power to keep it, but guess what we kept? We kept his word. We still have it. He knows that. So he says, then behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not and lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. There's like three things we're talking about there. The first one is just that there's this group called the synagogue of Satan. Now, I get that like once upon a time, you couldn't really call your organization that and have people sign up, but you'd be amazed at what the clubs at public school are doing these days. The synagogue of Satan, though, is really a reference to the Jewish religion, not the blood, but the religion in the New Testament era as anti-Christianity. That is, the scriptures of Christianity, but no Jesus, right? And so that synagogue of Satan who say, we're Jews, uh, John says, I'm a Jew, I'm a Christian, you're not a real Jew, a Christian or excuse me, a Jew is one who is one inwardly. A Jew is one who has a heart that believes in God. That's Paul's definition of a Jew. John's definition of a Jew, those who say there are Jews are not. They say they're monotheistic worshipers. They say they're inheritors of Abraham. They're not. Yeah. Are they bloodline of Abraham? Yes. Yeah. Should we hate these people? No, of course not. They're our neighbors. Yeah. But what he's saying is anybody who says that Jesus isn't the Christ is going to have to come and bow down before him, and you're not going to be bowing when that happens. You'll be standing beside Jesus when it happens. And so when the rest of the world, every tongue, every knee, must bow before Jesus Christ on that final day, uh, you get to stand for a while first and have them bow down to you too. 
because you're part of Jesus. So they owe you. He says, I will bring this to you. You've kept my word again, right? Um, they lie. Behold, I will make them bow down before you. I, I think I hit all those things. Oh, they will learn I have loved you. That's what you've got to learn. Where are you, God? Why aren't you helping me, God? Why is life going this way, God? Why is the government acting this way, God? How are you even there, God? Everyone's going to know at the end of time when they look at your life story laid out that all of it's because he loved you. So the sooner you figure that out, that he loves you, the sooner none of it's going to bother you quite so much. It'll bother you. You'll be angry still. But it's almost kind of like, yeah, there they go again, fools that they are. I think I'll not run after them and walk calmly toward the end of my day. That's all I got, after all, is today. So from there, then, you're loved by God. Live like it. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I'd love to tell you that that means that if since we all read that verse this morning together and we're all Christians and the body of Christ, then therefore, even if they drop a nuke somewhere in like Iowa, we're going to survive because he's promised us, right? It was right there, clear as day. And we'll be kept from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. I'd love to say that, but that would be a lie too. And yet, we don't want to overreact. Because it does mean that. It just doesn't mean it'll go the way you want. So the point is, if they drop a nuclear bomb anywhere and it happens to kill you, well, Jesus kept you from the hour of trial living through what happens after the nuclear bomb. If a nuclear bomb goes off and it doesn't kill you and you have to live through it, then Jesus is tempering you by the hour of trial he's bringing upon the pagans to condemn them in order to enhance you as light and salt in the midst of an age of evil. So that hour is not coming to try you, but to glorify you. Do you remember how Jesus said this? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. Rather, Father, glorify your name. And he walked to the cross. So I really would like you to take Revelation 3.11 and like write it down and believe it's a promise for you today, this week, this year. Pray it like it's a promise for St. Paul Lutheran Church. Like, in fact, he has said that nothing's going to stop this place from being here until the day that he comes back. And then recognize that if that means that the people who are St. Paul have to move, well, then we'll move. But that we Christians, we're going to keep making more Christians there's going to kill be a church. We don't need a building to have a church. It's helpful, certainly. Right? But believe firmly the door is open. No one can shut it. Believe firmly that we are made to stand until the end of days. Uh, as he says it here, hold fast to what you have. I'm coming soon. But no one sees your crown. The battle of Christianity is to stand there and just believe while the rest of the world's shouting, you idiot. And sometimes with a sword. And sometimes with the sometimes almighty, dollar. But always trying to surround us like a beast and bear us down so we don't believe what God has so clearly said, that there's an open door, it can't be shut. Baptized in the name of Jesus, anointed with the Holy God's Spirit, you're alive forevermore, hold fast. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Great language from Romans chapter eight there as well, right? More than conquerors. 
more than conquerors. That's where we're going, 23, 24. Uh, the next year, St. Paul, our next theme, more than conquerors. Get ready for it. It's beautiful. But Paul is talking about how, have you noticed, he's saying to the Romans, have you noticed there's a lot of Christians getting killed? Have you noticed that? Guess what? They're conquering because they're given as sheep to be slaughtered. We're all going to die one day. They're dying confident in their faith in front of people. That's conquering. We think conquering is like, like capturing a mountain and storing rocks inside behind piles of more rocks with maybe some paper and some electricity and a cow or two, right? Like that's wealth to us. And the New Testament says wealth is to face your death and say, bring it. Bring it. I'm going to walk right in. I'm going to be unafraid. I'm going to more than conquer. And that then allows you to more than conquer the moment. Again, the copy is so mediocre, but really, like when that happens, when I spill this thing I don't want to spill, the day gets the way I don't want the day to be, and now I have to do things I don't love, right? Am I a slave to what just happened to me? Or do I reign over it with a heart and tongue that praises Jesus anyway? That's the war right there. And let me tell you, it's a beautiful war. Start saying that hallelujah when you can. It changes the way you see. Start saying the name of Jesus Christ out loud. Pray with the Psalms. It's the name by which God conquers your heart. So join the battle. Speak it so that your heart is conquered before you expect everybody else to join our team. And then once we're all singing his praises, I, I don't think we have to look for people. You're going to find us just fine. Huh? Continuing on. Uh, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So this is kind of cool. If you want to imagine like this really big temple filled with light and gold and whatever precious stones and jewels you want. And it's got this huge vaulting arch and there's, there's pillars everywhere. And every pillar is one of us. Statue, right? How would you pose, right? Would you be like this, like this? What are you going to do, right? You're there standing firm, right? Um, we're all there as a pillar forever, and everyone goes by and they see, oh, we're part of it, right? Your name never goes away. Your face never goes away. Only here's the thing. This temple is not made of stone. It's made of humans. And it's not like gross, <laughs> like you killed the bodies and stacked them up. No, we're a living, active, moving organism called the body of Christ. And the temple is just a picture of that. Just a picture of that. So the one who conquers in faith lives alive as an immortal right now, and that is you by virtue of your baptism. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are the temple of the living God. You are the kingdom right here, right now, and that doesn't stop when you leave this building. Yeah. So the beautiful promise there, at the end of that, there's more to go with this promise. Uh, uh, never shall he go out of it. This is that temple again. I just kind of mentioned because we are it, right? Uh, and I will write on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, won't spend much time on that last verse. Uh, but three new names. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting that Jesus refers to the Father as my God. I think that's strange since Jesus is God, right? And here we get into a little of this Trinity, incarnation of Jesus, two natures of Christ. It can be complex when we try to like make it work like math. But what we're really supposed to see is that Jesus is God who has also become a man now, 
And so as a man, he not has to, but does have to. He wants to. He will, because he's a good man. He's going to worship God. He's going to have a God. You can't be a man and not have a God, by the way. The atheists are just sophists. It means they make up words they think they believe. Okay? Uh, they worship something. Everyone's going to serve something, right? So, so having a God, calling the true God my God, that's what Jesus does for you first. God is his God first. And now he says, I'm going to take my God's name that nobody knows, right? Yahweh, Jehovah of old, the Jews call him the Lord Adonai because, well, they just cover his name over and over again throughout history. We tend to do it. We make the name of God go away, even though there's power in the name of God. Uh, so um, uh, the name of God himself that nobody knows, that's going to get written on you. And then there's more. Right? Also, the city that God's going to found, it calls it the New Jerusalem, but apparently there's going to be a new name for that as well. Everlasting Paradise will have a new name. That's going to be written on you. And then you have Jesus' own new name, which I, I got to imagine the rider on the right horse in Revelation 20 has this name on his chest that no one can read or say. Yeah, but well, maybe, maybe no one can read or say it, but it's going to be inscribed right on you. Everyone's going to see it and know. You know, I, do you know who Prince is? Musician? He changed his name to like this picture. You know, it worked for years. I don't know how legally with the IRS he like filled in, you know, what that was. But, but this is the idea here, right? That the almighty name of God has like a vision is going to be written on you forever. And threefold. Threefold. Including the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, the city, Right? This is the promise. The door is open. I'm going to do it. And again, the name's written on you already. Have you ever watched a baptism and backed off to ask, what's happening? Huh? Everyone wants to debate. A baptism does this. Baptism does that. Yeah, But what's happening? Okay, there's water. And then Lutherans are real good. It's water, not alone, but water included in, with God's word, right? His command and his word. So, okay, water and word. That's great. You can see that. There's a person, pastor or otherwise. There's another person, going to be a Christian, not baptized yet. There's water. They get wet, and there's words. But now, this is where we Lutherans stop just shy of so clearly saying what's happening. Which words? Is that I baptize you in the name of there will be darkness out of light, or there will be light out of darkness. Right? I baptize you into the name of rejoice, rejoice. I mean, the things the Bible says, I'm not baptizing you into all those words. I mean, I am, but... But by virtue of what? I baptize you in the name. The name. He's writing his name on you with the water. And people come along and say it doesn't do anything. The name of God doesn't do anything? Well, I don't know. If you watch the Lutheran church, maybe it doesn't. We're a bit lukewarm. Uh, that's last week's sermon, though. Okay. The name is written on you. The door is open. No one can shut it. That's the promise. Walk. Walk. Right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. With our final uh, 20 minutes here, we're going to shift from, I hope I got you kind of going on that one, to a little more book knowledge uh, that I want us to have as a church that does believe we are walking toward the end of the world, and the end of the world could happen while we're still alive, and the end of the world could happen in coincidence with the collapse of the United States, although I don't think that's likely myself. I don't think we're that big. 
We're not that cool. If God's going to make some real end times, global unification, destructo monster beast, I just think it's got to be a little bit worse than we are right now. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's kind of what we got to talk about here, though, is what are the things that you need to know about how the world's going to end? Because there's a lot of people out there talking about, I said red moons, you know, blood moons and all this stuff. Or perhaps, did you see what happened uh, with the nation state of Israel last week, right? And they're watching all these various events of today, and they're trying to match them up with Revelation or Daniel or Micah or whoever they feel like, frankly, uh, just to say, oh, really, right now, send money. And really, I mean, look at these things they send you. Please do. I know you get mail. Look at these things they send you. What are they actually doing with the money? What are they doing with it? Okay. And they send money. If they're asking for money, it doesn't mean they're bad. Uh, but just there's a little too much of that out there these days. Okay. So uh, the four different ways that Christians debate about, believe the world is going to end one of these four ways can kind of be broken down to, to three. So we're going to do that this morning, but the four are all printed on this sheet, right? So now's the time for this little sheet to pull out on the back. And I'm going to go uh, backwards, forwards. I don't, I don't know the reverse direction of what I did last time and start at the bottom uh, with this one. Ah, uh, millennialism. And ah, millennialism is one possible timeline for how the world's going to end. It is also the Lutheran one. Okay, so that's us down there at the bottom. We're the ah, millennialists. And it's so hard to say. I feel like I'm slurring my words even when I slow down and say ah, millennialism. It's so difficult to say. Um, there's a reason for that word millennial. And that's kind of what we're going to have to dig at here a little bit more. But the awe on the front of it is called an alpha privative. It negates what comes next. So if you wanted to be real literal, we would say that awe millennialism is there is no millennialism, right? As opposed to above that, post millennialism is post after the millennium. And the two above that, pre millennialism is before the millennium. And all of this about the millennium is the question, does it happen before or after Jesus comes back? And that has to do with what the text says in Revelation chapter 20. We want to turn there. We're going to go through some of it in a moment. We're going to stay on this um, you know, uh, handout first. We're going to get to uh, chapter 20 in a moment, page 1040. So this millennium thing is what it'll say in a moment in Revelation 20 which is that Christ will reign for a thousand years with the devil bound. And that after this, or behind this, depending on how you want to translate it, and I would say it's behind this, the devil's going to be unbound. So the millennium is a thousand year reign of Christ, and the devil's binding is connected to this very, very clearly. Does that thousand year reign of Christ happen before he comes back, that's post-millennialism. What they would teach is that what we should see, what we will see, 
is the world getting more and more peaceful under the name of Jesus Christ until one day there is in fact a reign over the whole world in the name of Jesus Christ for a thousand years, generation to generation. And Jesus comes back in the middle of, at the beginning of, at the end of that, depending on your flavor of post-millennial. Um, very few people believe in this, that Christianity is going to conquer the world and then Jesus comes back. Um, I kind of like it as an idea, but I'm not sure it's what the Bible teaches at all. I see the appeal, though. I guess I would say it that way. Um, I, I see the appeal of the premillennial as well, but this is like flip it a little bit. Now, instead of it getting better and better until Jesus comes back because we got it going so good, now it's going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back and makes it even worse because he's going to take all the Christians away in this thing called the rapture which the Bible doesn't really talk about, although the word is used once. <laughs> and it talks about the end of the world and being caught up to Christ, but it doesn't necessarily talk about taking away all the Christians from history and leaving everybody else here to go through some form of tribulation in order to then have the millennium happen after that. Now, you're dealing with the tribulation and uh, the inner, inner time periods and all this. This is that very top phrase, dispensational premillennialism which I made the joke at first service to see if I can pull it off again. Um, you know, in, in the Old Testament, they wanted to confuse everybody. So they named people the same names and kings at the same time with sons' names. And they're all named with J's and Y's and Aikens and Abos. And it's really hard to pay attention to. They did that to confuse us. But there wasn't anything like that in the New Testament because Peter and James and John, those are, those are very clear names. So we had to come up with something confusing. So the Lutherans came along and decided, let's call everything the longest word we can. Talk about premillennial dispensationalism. There you go, right? It's a little long joke, but hopefully it, it made your morning a touch. The, what you want to remember is there, there are those who believe it's going to get better until the end of the world. There are those who believe it's going to get worse, and then we're going to be taken away, and then there's going to be another world. And there are those that believe it's going to be like it is right now, and maybe worse, probably, before the end of the world. That's us. Okay, so our view is that all of this is happening together. And this is a big piece of like how the book of Revelation works. I hit this last week for us. Is the book a roadmap for the future where you go from chapter one to chapter 21 and it's all in order? That's what premillennial dispensationalism wants to do. You end up with multiple ends of the world, multiple returns of Christ. Satan is caught. Satan's let go. Satan's caught again. Oh, by the way, the sins of the world have to be put on Satan before everything can get fixed. We've got to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem before Jesus can come back. And uh, the cross was actually a mistake. <laughs> but they don't tell you that part up front. So premillennial dispensationalism is a problem. It's a big, big problem. Today, I'm just exposing you to this partially because... If you go to any church in town that's not Catholic, I almost guarantee you they are premillennial dispensationalists in their thinking. The way they think of the end of the world is that. So I want us to be exposed to that, and then I want us to see the text they use to say that. We're going to look at that right now, and I want to explain it as an alternative version. Ah, uh, millennial. Uh, that is not that there is no millennium, but that the millennium never ends. So Revelation chapter 20 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit 
and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for, there it is, a thousand years, that's a millennium, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So here you have introduced, right with the language of the millennium, the thousand years, another amount of time. And that other amount of time is a little while. And for the rest of this chapter, you're going to have a thousand years and a little while kind of at war with each other. So my encouragement is that you don't think of this as in order, but two ways of looking at the same time. If you are God looking at the time between Jesus crowning on the cross, his resurrection and his return, when Satan is able to rule over the world, you'd call that a little while. It's a little while. While he deceives the nations. And yet if you wanted to create a kingdom that could never be conquered, wherein Satan is bound like a strong man, that his house might be plundered, and the nations can no longer be deceived, a kingdom that biblically is going to last forever and ever to fulfill all promises given to the throne of David, and you wanted to mark that with some sort of symbol that said it's from God and is complete and perfect and will not end but be full forever, you'd use the number 1,000 to do that. Because it means God's completion, God's fullness. And the only trouble you're going to have in English is when it says at the end of verse 3, until the thousand years were ended. You're going to say, but pastor, it says ended. And I'll say, I know. The English says ended, but the word means full. Full. Until the thousand years are full, right? Satan is uh, kept bound. If you can see the thousand-year reign of Christ then as the church of Jesus Christ and the little season of Satan as the church of Satan, the pagans, the world, and that for a little while, the world is going to continue to be deceived by Satan, but he's bound and cannot touch you, then you can start to see the power of being a member of the kingdom in the millennium of Jesus. You know that everything that's going on, whatever, how bad it is, is but for a little while. And now who are you? This is what comes next in verse 4. I saw thrones. Thrones. Like you reign, right? Like you conquer. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge were committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's your millennium again. And it is the millennium of the reign of those who are beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Now you got two ways to go here, right? You can go, that's only for like 17 people. Right? You have to actually get beheaded. And otherwise, it's not for you. Here's the other one. Uh, when you were baptized, God cut your head off and put it back on again. That to be beheaded in the name of Jesus is to lose this life and gain the next one. And then that means to come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Right now, 
the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That would be then at the day of resurrection. So from now until the day of resurrection, you're alive in a way that unbelievers are not alive. They're not alive yet. They'll get this other resurrection later with their bodies, but they won't have this first resurrection. This, right now, your faith, next words in the text, this is the first resurrection. Right now, already, we're alive, immortal. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's you. Blessed and holy are you in Jesus Christ. Over such, the second death has no power. Right? So, so if you don't get the first resurrection, you seem to be alive now. The first death will end your seeming to be alive, and the second death, hell, is going to just be hell. If you are a Christian now, you've always already been risen from the dead by the first resurrection, so you know your first death is as good as already happened. You just kind of have to live through it now. But you're going to get the second resurrection of your body to go on top of this first resurrection of your soul, and that will mean that hell will have no power over you. This is some beautiful stuff right here. I do pray you're picking up what I'm laying down. You will reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's right now, forever. How? By what you say. By what you say with your tongue. Now, there is this little season of Satan. We still live in the midst of it. Verse 7, and when the thousand years were ended, or full uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. It's just a great imagery to really unpack Gog and Magog and understand what John means by this apparent victory of the little season of Satan. We need to spend at least 30 minutes on Ezekiel 38, 39. Uh, which we're not going to have time to do today. But let's just say that the way that John uses the beast out of the sea in the book of Revelation as a picture of all the pagan religions as a government trying to kill the church at various times in history, well, that's Gog for Ezekiel. Gog is the beast who is the global power who wants to destroy Jesus' faith. Huh? And so here, John is acknowledging this, that the world under Satan's release, that is where Christ is not preached, where baptism is not administered, where the Lord's Supper is not eaten, Satan is there to deceive the nation still. I've had this thought for, for many years now about experience with demons and how we live in an age where you just don't see any, Right? I mean, maybe on street corners begging, but you don't see as many. And I started thinking one time, I wonder, I wonder if baptism does more than anybody realizes. Because what's happening now is a whole generation of unbaptized people being raised. People whose parents were brought to church as kids, went to Sunday school, learned about nonsense and never came back. And now their kids aren't baptized. Do you think the demons have a leg up in that battle? I'm going to suggest they do right? Gog and Magog, the little season of Satan. It's all around us, and they march like a great army. They look like they're going to destroy us. It doesn't seem like we're going to win. Verse 9, they march up over the broad plain of the earth, surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Run toward the tomb with the church in Philadelphia. It very rarely is going to look like we're going to win, but we're winning every step of the way. And you more than conquer by believing that no matter what they shout at you. you. Just get the name of Jesus that's on you in the anointing that's been given to you out of your mouth and on your lips. Psalms and Proverbs, easy hook, gets it going fast in your life. And that is to reign. Wood that we reigned, St. Paul. In the name of Jesus.